netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hi, and welcome to this FX Podcast. I'm Mike Seymour. This is a bonus FX podcast. Uh, We just really wanted to drop in this kind of shorter but fun chat I had with Scott Pritchard uh, from ILM. Now, Scott was the visual effects supervisor for ILM on Andor. And I have to say, we adored Andor. I think the whole premise of it, the way it was filmed, and the visual effects were just stunning. It's already been confirmed for a uh, second season, which is brilliant. Um, And in fact, we were speaking to Scott in London when he was working on that second uh, series. The um, writer and executive producer was uh, Tony Gilroy, and he's just done a fabulous job in taking Cassian Andor, a character obviously from Rogue One, and building a really complex and interesting series. So I hope you enjoy this chat as much as we did, focusing on this very different view of the Star Wars galaxy by the team at ILM and led by ILM's visual effects supervisor, Scott Pritchard. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. No worries. Yeah, great to be on. Hey, um, I adored this show. I just honestly mm. thought it was spectacular at so many different levels. Um not least of which was that it felt like there was sort of sort of uh, arcs, like smaller arcs inside bigger arcs that just meant mm-hmm. that I was fulfilled like in terms of the, you know, the way that the story was going. But I don't want to talk to you about the story. I want to talk to you about the visuals, which mm-hmm. also were equally as satisfying and seemed terribly contextual. Um, was that always the plan to feel quite so, as I say, kind of grounded? Very much so. And just going back to your earlier point about story, I mean, that was throughout the the entire show. It was very much that the visual effects were always in service of the story. And having someone as strong as Tony Gilroy being the showrunner and, and such a strong writer, you know, the, the actual the script, the story itself and the character development and the dialogue was always incredibly strong. So we already had a, a really great kind of base to work off of. And really, it was just showing background background and adding context um to to the story and the script there there was a huge variety of stuff because mm-hmm. as i alluded to a second ago you had these kind of smaller arcs um mm-hmm. so if we can i'd like to cover a couple of aspects about the general way you did it but then like we have to kind of delve into these different worlds because like the whole prison world is completely different to the to the opening kind of world in uh certainly in an art direction but what is consistent mm-hmm. throughout is it seemed like everything was being told from a blocking point of view, from a cinematography, from a visual effects point of view, from the point of the characters, which is quite different from what we're used to with the Star Wars big establishing shot that just goes on and on and on as it did in the original. Um, yeah. So the the visual language changed. I mean, it was still Star Wars, but it really had a, like a, a quite a sophisticated, different perspective on the views that you're creating. Yeah, very much so. And that was something Mo and Leo, uh, who was the um, the production VFX supervisor, and TJ Falls, the production uh, VFX producer, and me and my team here uh, discussed very, very early on when we were talking initially about the scope of the show, was that it was always, almost always going to feel like there was a camera operator with a camera on their shoulder right in the middle of the action. So, And that extended to just how the the plates for the visual effects shots were filmed. They were filmed a lot. Most of them were filmed on location in in various um, locations around the UK, including London. Um, 
a few in London, uh, a few around in London. So that was um, that was a big part of just helping those uh, those shots feel grounded. And the only kind of helicopter style shots were actually, you know, up with other ships, like when the attack pods are dropping into Ferrix. You know, so there's a there's a there's a point to the shots. You know, you're not just up in the air looking at meanwhile on Ferrix kind of uh, kind of thing. Yeah, so the shot that really was the signature tune for me was the Star Destroyer. So they haven't broken in yet to get the payroll, and you have a Star Destroyer coming in from overhead. But unlike every time we've seen in these sort of things traditionally in Star Wars, it's from a, a person's point of view, kind of looking up in awe. But but that visual effect shot, that blocking, is a very different blocking. Like You don't normally have a person in the foreground and a enormous Imperial Star Trooper kind of uh, in the same shot, right? It's a different kind of composition, different way of pulling those shots together. Absolutely. And, I, you know, it was really pays testament to Tony's ability to kind of pivot and see Star Wars from a completely different perspective, you know, and see it from the human level, from the ground up, you know, um, really taking advantage of that wonderful universe that George created and, you know, bunch of universes really that we could, you know, these almost like these containers that you can tell stories within. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it, you, you, you get that all across the entire sequence, you know, where you're able to feel like with, with the folks down in Ferrix, you can feel that the, the, the slow turn of the screw that the, the empire is, 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 is doing for them. And those, again, seeing the increasing presence of the empire throughout the series. And then, yeah, I mean, to get that kind of, um, you know, that, that, that shot, Looking up at the starter store with that with um with Cinta um was just a really nice uh moment to be able to just kind of tuck it into the clouds and kind of make it it's not it it's um it's more silhouette, it's not too gratuitous either. You know, it's it's mm. trying to kind of blend it into the clouds, make it more silhouetted and just feel like this really ominous presence, which is really, really cool um opportunity to be able to do. So so you basically built a revolution where the revolution is happening to ordinary people who just happen to be at a very bleak period in history. Mm. From a visual effects point of view, though, unlike the sort of trend that obviously ILM had been at the forefront of, you didn't go for LED volumes. You went for like a heap of location work. Can you talk me through that sort of like the implications of that? I presume it was like that from the outset, but you did mm. have a, a sort of a whole range of tools you chose chose not to use, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, there was, um, there was, you know, just from the point of view of of, of favouring location photography. Um, for instance, in the London's Barbican uh, Centre, there's a lot of really interesting brutalist architecture that just lends itself to um, being on Coruscant. You know, we could you you have the, just the nature of the architecture itself means that you can punch holes in it and you're trying to tell the story of this planet that's the size or a city that's the size of a planet so you can use that architecture to your advantage and actually like i say punch holes through it and see much further away than the next building along that is in reality you actually kind of Put a lot of haze and a lot of negative space in between that and, and and the next building along, so you can suddenly kind of imbue these shots with much much more depth. Um, which um, we had some really nice. There's a there's a top down shot where um, 
uh, Claire meets Vel for a secret meeting, and um, th- it was it was a, a high up shot um, from a rooftop looking down uh, in the Barbican, and we we basically just chopped out most of the background and then pushed all the buildings much much further away. Gives the shot really nice scope and and uh, and size. Um, so that was that was great. I mean, it's it's when you when you have well lo- well chosen locations and interesting photography to start with then that really helps the visual effects process because you can kind of use that as a springboard to design your shots but it was such a tactile sort of set of performances and uh, even sound design and everything else but you tended to look like your blocking was going hey instead of doing the wide shot and cutting in for the close up we'll almost start on the close up and let somebody walk in away from camera which will then kind of reveal the mm. wide um so, so that had to be much more uh, after the principal photography because I mean, if you're in a wide establishing shot, you can pretty much come up with anything the concept artists want, right? And you just punch in for a close up, but um, you know, like down on the ground kind of thing. You didn't have those god shots that jumped down. You kind of built out from your. So, so I guess my question is, how much were those designs? only able to be done after principal photography or how much did you have those designs and then you went for principal photography knowing exactly how they were going to play out i mean with with the example of corison um we actually based it more on we we looked at building uh, cities should i say uh, like tokyo beijing um new york and designed our neighborhoods in that fashion so it was it was actually uh, using the the buildup and the variety of materials and the the different layering options uh, that we had, so in, instead of shot design, it was more like neighborhood design or block design, where we're actually um, building a cityscape and a, a kit of parts that we could then use to design each shot as we were going. Um, that was that was more the, the the approach that we took for each one, and then yeah, just looking at the opportunities within each shot to actually, you know, place buildings where it would create interesting negative space or a silhouette um, where it was like a particularly hazy day. Let's say, you know, we could look at the way the depth the haze stacked up um, uh, and various yeah various things like that. So it's a an oppressive environment. It's also kind of a middle management environment. So you weren't dealing with people that were, you know, aware of everything that was going on in all parts of the the galaxy. They were kind of just aware of their bit. Hmm. But into that bleak, as you said, you know, the brutalist architecture and all that kind of stuff. There was a huge amount of humor as well. Was I don't know how whether the humor affected your visual effect shots, but like there clearly was like almost overtones of Brazil in that first three episodes. The, oh, the cool. film Brazil. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you picked up on that. Actually, that was yeah, that was a definite reference that we used. Um, I mean, yeah, we we kind of we split Coruscant into three distinct neighborhoods, as it were. You had the very upper echelons, um, where places like Luthen's Gallery, um, Mon Mothma's Embassy, where there were amongst the towers. Um, and, and above this, what we call the surface layer, which was the main kind of the, the, the roof layer almost, and then there's t- these towers that kind of uh, rise up over that. Um, and then we get this kind of middle block, which is more like where Cyril um, Cyril uh, lives with his mum in, in, in her apartment. Um, and then we have Lower Coruscant, which is much more like in the in the kind of service basement almost of Coruscant. So it's um, it's almost kind of getting on for a kind of Blade Runner theme. 
but yeah, absolutely. Like you say, that the, the element of comedy. I mean, Cyril's journey um, back from you know the chaos on on Ferrix with uh, or uh, on Morlana with the Primor uh, security company, getting fired from that, and then going going back to live with his mum in kind of middle Coruscant. We played a lot with the the the, the available sunlight. Um, so as you get further down into Coruscant. The natural light starts to diminish, and you get more more um, dependent on 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 artificial light. And yeah, there were a lot of little gags, like when he's in his um, he's in his bedroom, and there's a moment of the day where he gets lit by a, a, a shaft of sunlight, and um, and then that eventually goes away. Well, the original idea for that was that it would be direct sunlight from the sun. But then we thought we couldn't be that nice to Cyril, and we actually kind of made it a reflected sunlight off a off a building that we uh, that we placed. So he never he never actually sees the sun; he just sees a reflection of the sun. So we just a moment ago spoke about that uh, unusual shot of the Star Destroyer, but you also had actual space shots, right? I mean, it's not like you you didn't have the space shots. Yeah. So. Um, how did you take this ethos that we've been talking about into those more, well, not traditional, but you know what I mean, like more sort of uh, space battle type uh, sequences? Yeah, I mean, when Moen first briefed us on on the, the space battle, um, it was, you know, it had already been really extensively prevised. Um, so they knew what the beats were going to be and how, how the action was going to unfold. Um, one thing that we did, Bring to it that um, we haven't really looked at before was was having it in high orbit, so lower than the battle over Scarif um, from Rogue One. But um, one particular reference that Moen found was the beginning uh, opening shots of Ad Astra um, with Brad Pitt, and he gets uh, gets onto a kind of an observation deck and climbs down this ladder, and just the the visuals of that really striking blue gradient up to darker blue at the top of frame was something that um, we were really interested in, in kind of exploiting. And so we we moved it down in, in altitude to be much closer to the planet Segramilo um, where it takes place over. And that gave us some interesting opportunities that you don't normally get in a space battle, like the idea of negative space, because normally, you know, you've got a black background and you've got, you know, either gray or dark gray or white ships. Um, whereas actually we could use the, particularly with the Fondor Hallcraft, which is a slightly darker metallic gray, you could actually use that to kind of create some interesting negative space shapes against a lighter blue background or the, the actual planet surface itself. Um, but um, we kind of kept, um, we, we leveraged the, the all the research that had been done on Rogue One to make the CG ships look give them that aesthetic of miniature photography from the original trilogies and that was a i mean from a personal point of view that was a real treat for me because my first role in in the vfx industry back in the 90s was as a model maker so that was really nice to be able to go back to that kind of era a little bit even even you know digitally so we look back on all the techniques that they used um in lighting and compositing to bring that kind of feel of the the original kind of film shot miniatures into into the sequence, and then again, you know, just uh, to be able to bring the Arrestor Cruiser to life because the the story behind that ship was that it was I was you know a lot of folks will know this, but um, it was uh, the original production designer on 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 A New Hope was a guy called Colin Cantwell, and it was Colin's original design for the Star Destroyer, um, and to be able that 
you know, eventually got modified and became the Star Destroyer that we all know and love, but to be able to bring the original design and actually give the dishes a purpose as well, um, to to give them that kind of tractor beam thing, um, was just really cool. It was uh, it was such a great opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like in in addition to like the actual accomplishment of those shots, the sort of building these things that are of the same universe. And by that, I mean like the same cultural background so that I can identify that it's come from a same culture, even though it's sometimes not immediately obvious. It has to still feel of that world, right? And mm-hmm. and you had like multiple worlds here that you were trying to do that for. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that falls down to um, the production designer, Luke Hull, you know, because you know Star Wars has a very distinct production uh aesthetic and, and value um and to be able to bring something new and fresh to that is always a challenge but i mean i think luke did a fabulous job of bringing all that together yeah. and we've had some really great concept art to work from when we were when we we're starting to design our sequences as well yeah and yet you want new and different but we don't want it to actually look different if that makes sense <laughs> yeah it needs to look familiar almost yeah, yeah. tell me about ferrix tell me about that section and yeah. the, the work you guys did there so Ferrex was always designed to be this, um, you know, relatively affluent, uh, well, working, pla- working class, but, you know, um, affluent uh, planet where basically the main industry was breaking apart spaceships. Um, and so we, it was designed as, you know, we wanted to make sure that we didn't do another desert planet. Um, it was meant to be kind of, you know, um, very dry and arid, but not Tatooine. So we chose, there was some uh, aerial footage of a desert over, I believe, Namibia, which had these amazing iron ore deposits. And it gave this really great kind of um, red, uh, orangey red kind of feel to the ground. So that's where we ended up going for the for the, the overall kind of color, con- the color palette for the planet. So um, we built, uh, so Ferrex itself, um, there's a town, it, which has, you know, which they built, a, the set guys built a, a pretty large set, which uh, which they based in Marlow and Buckinghamshire, which isn't too far from Pinewood Studios where the production was based. And, um, well. <laughs> and, um, and then, um, so that was the main sequence for the, for the, 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 the shots for the, within the town itself. Now out of the town rises this big cliff uh, mesa, which has a flat top on it. And on top of the, on top of the mesa is what we call the Northside Big Yard, which is where they had these enormous spaceships that were being scrapped and salvaged and taken apart. So there was a load of different things that we had to bring together in terms of different um, different looks and different uh, components. So we had um, there was a an oil rig salvage yard um, called Port Abel Seaton up in the northeast of England that we went to take reference photography of and it just happened that the day we went up to take the reference photography it was incredibly hazy and misty and you have these enormous oil rigs just standing there in the kind of looming out the mist these beautiful big silhouettes and it just it just gave them much more presence rather than being a clear day this mist gave them these incredible presence so we kind of lent into that for the actual sequence itself or sequences uh, should I say up on the on on the actual on the actual rigs? Um, 
So we use those ideas of having these, these rigs and then giving them these big arms, which would effectively clamp onto the sides of the spaceships. So these were the almost like the, the rigs that would hold the spaceships in place while they were being taken apart. Um, we used a load of footage of um, ship dismantling um, yards uh, where they just, you know, welding torch cut through the side of a ship and just let it fall off. That was, we had a couple of really cool uh, reference shots of that, which we used for one of the shots that, you know, when we actually get introduced to the, uh, again, kind of harken back to your comment about, you know, you don't, you don't really get a, an aerial introduction to Ferrex. It just starts with the side of a spaceship falling off and smashing into the ground. And you're suddenly, you're already in there in the action. Um, that was, we used, um, a couple of shots, reference shots of people cutting the sides off ships for that. Um, and then as well for the surrounding environment for the for the um for the, the north side big yard, um, I went out to Lanzarote in the uh, in the Canary Islands myself and my environment supervisor Guy Williams went out for uh, a few days there and we shot helicopter photogrammetry of a couple of different particular um volcanic um uh Kind of features, and then we went and actually shot some some plates as well um, with a, a shot over gyros uh, stabilized camera on the front of the helicopter, which again just by pure luck um, we were taking the helicopter out for a test flight, um, and it was only to test the the, the weight of the nose, uh, the weight of the camera on the nose, and just make sure the weight balance was okay. And there was myself, the pilot, and the camera operator in the helicopter, and we took off from the airport headed up into the mountains and it just happened to be the most amazing weather because similar to Port Abel Seton, it was just this incredible low haze with the sun kind of reasonably low, these beautiful silhouetted volcanic mountains. And the camera operator just turned to me and said, so we just try and shoot some stuff. And luckily I had all my notes and, and we prepped, I'd done all the prep beforehand. And so a 10 minute test flight turned into a couple of hours shooting and we got about 80% of the shots that we ended up uh, using. So that was a, a, a good dose of luck for that one. But yeah, the the, um, the volcanic region uh, that we ended up shooting has this incredible black and red volcanic soil, which is really distinctive and just lent itself really nicely to Ferrix. Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. I mean, we people talk often about that thing about if you actually are shooting live plate elements, you, know, you get sort of happy mistakes, they sometimes refer to it as. Uh, but yeah, it's that, you know, it's, it's a lot to imagine everything. And so if you can actually go out and experience it, then you don't have to imagine you can, you know, soak it in. And I think this show does a tremendous job of doing that. And it shows, I think, not only in, in the principal photography, but how the visual effects manage to capture that quality of light, because it's not mm. going to work if your quality of light doesn't live up to what you're getting out of the, uh, out of the cinematography to that end. Could you talk to me like what you were shooting, was this a 4K master? I assume it was a 4K master. So what yeah. were you shooting on and uh, and what were you rendering in actually? So we they were all shot on Sony Venice cameras uh, with Panavision lenses. Um, so yeah, already starting from a very nice place. Um, we rendered, so yeah, we the, the whole thing was was mastered and, and the working res was 4K all the way through. Uh, 4K um, HDR as well. So, um, and uh, yeah, we rendered, I mean, for our environments, we used Houdini um, for for the majority of our, our environments, a little bit of 3D Studio Max as well. And then um, for rendering Katana and and, um, and Renderman, 
and then yeah, Compton Compton Nuke was our our main pipeline. I do find it funny that we can't kind of agree on whether it's uh, high dynamic range or ultra high dynamic or ultra HD or whatever it is that like at the uh, projection end. But that does mean that you get a lot of richness in the in the blacks, and there were certainly sequences that you needed to comp in. I think in the first few apps, actually, in fact, probably the opening shot, you had to like do these like amazingly dark scenes, and then the stuff we were talking about earlier was like incredibly bright skylight skylight daylight mm. i should say mm. so both of those ends of the spectrum are benefiting from that dynamic range aren't they very much so but then yeah i think we, we also wanted to make sure that we didn't fall into that trap of i want to see all the detail all the time you know we could let stuff blow out into the kind of you know uh, uh, into those super whites where you just you know the detail falls off at the top end and also at the bottom end you know we didn't want to make sure that we wanted to make sure that stuff can fall into darkness and you just get the, you know, it sometimes kind of leaning into that slightly more graphic feel as well. So I think that helps keep a kind of a, a nice grounded photographic realism to the shots as well. So we're not trying to overplay the VFX. So while it's a lot of environment work, there was character work as well, right? I presume you guys got to do Alan's droid when he came back with uh, K2SO? Yeah, well, that, that was the interesting one actually. Yeah, because he's um, it was a regular KX droid. Um, so we um, K two hasn't hasn't shown up. Um, okay. And the KX droid was really there was a couple of KX droids in in that sequence on the beach, um, which was shot in Blackpool in uh, April, I believe, which uh, is <laughs> very very cold. The poor guys was meant meant to uh, you know trying to make it look like it was baking hot. <laughs> So I misread that then because I assumed it was the same droid yet to be converted, as it were, right? It was just the same model droid. Is that right? Mm, so yeah, it's, okay. it's basically, uh, yeah, pre, it, I don't, it's not K2SO himself just yet, but um, okay. yeah, there, there are two regular KX droids. So okay. we had one shot from Rogue One that we could reference where they're just breaking into the base on Scarif, um, Cassian and Jin and K2. And K2, they they pass a KX droid walking in the other direction. And um, yeah, their 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 style of movement is very different. You know, K2 has this kind of almost swagger. Yes. You know, he's got that more, more human movement in the shoulders and the hips, whereas the K, the KX droid is very, very stiff and robotic, which is you know, that it should be. So we we took that and you know, we had, I mean, when when we when when we shot those plates, they were we used um, stunt performers in in mocap suits on stilts as well to get all the, you know, um, for for Diego to be able to react to as well. Um, but yeah, though the the animation was very much driven by that reference shot and making sure that um, yeah, the motion was appropriately robotic. Um, yeah, yeah, and it was it was more than just robotic. It was annoyingly unable to be dealt with robotic, if that makes sense. Like. You know, like you couldn't argue with it because it was droid logic. It had the same kind of precision of movement and kind of annoying sort of deliberateness that said, I'm not going to break programming, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even there was a there's a little bit of comedy in in that moment where Cassian says, No, 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 you meant he meant wait. Um, you know, when he's holding him up against the yeah. I mean, even that shot. I mean, I've got to, I've got to give a shout out to our paint artists and compositors, where the, you know, we had a, a stunt guy with his hand around Cassian's neck. Uh, Cassian's up on a stunt rig, 
um, against the wall. And there was a huge amount of paint and um, finesse work to actually remove the hand, make sure all the shadows and the folds of the skin uh, reacted to the droid hand um, pressing against his neck. So what you, know, you could still get that sense of peril of the the, the hand actually going to try to choke Cassian, basically. Um, so that was that was a really cool shot to do. Yeah, it's that contact and interaction and contact lighting that sort of bounces off that in the way that it doesn't off a hand. Like a human hand as well. Yeah, that really sells that stuff in. So would would you what would you sort of characterize as the more difficult sort of part of your brief on this show? Was it this dynamic? I keep on going about the range of stuff you had to come up with and how you were like kind of existing outside of the safety of a straight sound studio with an LED volume. But what was mm. it that for you sort of was most challenging? That's a great question. Um I think, I mean, the, the range was amazing. I've got to say that was um, being able to, trying to come up with the, the the number of different planets that we did, um, make them all feel like they were part of the Star Wars universe. Um, and yet also, so different. Yet so different and also serve as a backdrop to the story as well. Make sure they were always, you know, it, it they... They weren't a thing of them of themselves, you know. They always, you know, making sure that the character in the story is always front and center. And um, you know, okay, save for obviously our, our space battle, which is which is great, and to be able to kind of tell a story with that, you know, is, is brilliant. Um, I think that was Look, really as, as, as strong as that base space battle was. I honestly, if you'd asked me to sort of go to my mind as the like, what's the indicative shot? It was the it was the depth of shots with live action foreground, not the space shots that sort of mm. linger most strongly in my mind, right? It was this idea that you just made these complete environments that started in the intimate kind of immediacy of whichever character you're with and then just yeah. went for forever. Yeah, that was the stuff that I just felt like was a hallmark. Like as a, a, a testament to blocking cinematography that worked both digitally and and obviously from the, the actual cinematography that was done, but, you know, like that whole kind of, use of perspective, I guess, it was just, uh, yeah, it tied in so well that you had to kind of remind yourself, oh, okay, I've been to the, the to some of these locations in London. That That isn't like that. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, you didn't just find them, but they, man, they felt so grounded. Yeah, and it's 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 really about, like, you know, when, I mean, again, it's it's testament to to the location scouts and the work of, of Luke Hull and, and Moen and TJ as well, and actually finding these locations and, and kind of having the vision to go, okay, I can kind of see what this is going to look like. Um, and then shooting those and then kind of using that as a springboard for other ideas of, you know, things that we could add to the shots, you know, um, the, there's a, there's a footbridge in Canary Wharf in London that we used for yep. the, entrance way to the ISB headquarters you know and um I mean we're always we're always given a very detailed and complete brief from Moen in terms of you know what it should look like and you know the, the idea that these these spires were <clears throat> were you know this black kind of obsidian glass so it's a very strong very graphic design um placed in the middle of these more kind of art deco um you know new york style skyscrapers as well so it's a you know to be able to kind of meld that with the the slightly sci-fi uh canary wharf bridge and it's a it's a real thing you know it's, it's a it's a great kind of uh 
trying to actually come up with something that makes sense architecturally as well and kind of given give some kind of thought to how this thing would actually function um you know as well as the the strong design aspect of it as well was was um yeah it was it was really fun to to kind of work through and actually get something that feels right you know yeah i mean i loved rogue one and uh, i'm you know a fan of the kind of whole star wars universe but this really was standout material like you guys just knocked it out of the i'm not just saying that i swear to god like i just thought this was like one of the finest pieces of television that we've seen in terms of like i know it's a bit of a hackneyed expression but like world building and environment mm -hmm. like building an environment that that came so directly from the perspective of the characters was just first rate like the restraint for not doing some of the things that you could clearly ILM could do. Yeah, you know, we know you can do it. You've done it before, but not doing it sometimes was almost as clever as doing it. And it it made it, you know, like a yeah, just one with the character. So anyway, I just wanted to say how impressed we were. It was just really great work. And thanks for taking time to talk to us about it. Oh, not a problem. That's been a pleasure. We want to thank Scott for taking time out of his uh, work in London on the uh, next series of Andor to talk to us. And uh, yeah, just fabulous work. And it's so great to see visual effects so beautifully integrated into the narrative, but not just in terms of story, but as we were discussing in the uh, in the podcast, just in terms of the aesthetic, the underlying subtext of what's going on in the shots, just really gorgeous work. So again, thanks so much. I'm Mike Seymour. Uh, John Montgomery will be back next week. I know I said that last week, but he's still on holidays. But uh, until then, see you. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.